The Vermont Conversation with David Goodman is brought to you by Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility and by Vermont Student Assistance Corporation, Green Mountain Power, Concept2, Norwich Solar Technologies, The Alchemist Brewery, Let's Grow Kids, UVM Medical Center, and nearly 700 business members of Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility who believe that sustainable business practices value people, planet, and profit. Is America on the brink of authoritarianism? Steve Levitsky has been wrestling with that question. Levitsky is a professor of government at Harvard University and is co-author with, with fellow Harvard professor Daniel Zeiblatt of the international best-selling book, How Democracies Die. Uh, Steve Levitsky, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for having me, David. Let's begin where you begin. The opening sentence of How Democracies Die, which was published in January 2018, you ask, is our democracy in danger? What is your answer to that today? I think it is. And I think uh, the events in the, in the two years since we, I guess three years since we wrote the book, two years since we published it, um, have only reinforced those fears. Uh, I think that in the, as, as worried as we were, the Trump administration has been a little bit worse than we expected. I think we, looking back at the book, were slightly optimistic. Um, now, this does not mean that we are on the verge of fascism or even that we're on the verge of autocracy, but I think our democratic institutions as they exist um, are being seriously challenged and um, are at serious risk of crisis. I mean, you can slide into a democratic crisis and fall into a period of instability, constitutional crisis and instability, without consolidating an authoritarian regime. I think it's less likely that we become a, an outright autocracy. But yeah, we face a real threat to our democracy. Um, you say you think you were uh, a little naive or uh, in, how do you describe it? Naive, optimistic. Optimistic, I'm sorry. Uh, in reading this book, which uh, to me is kind of a, a roadmap for understanding where we are in America and the world right now, uh, I don't think of it as being overly optimistic. So what were you too optimistic about? I think the biggest, the most important area was the Republican Party. We stated in, in late in the book when we sort of look forward that we expected that a faction of the Republican Party, especially in the Senate, this is when John McCain was alive, would act as a constraint on Trump. We did not foresee the rapid and total Trumpization of the Republican Party. We expected that the, you know, the, the establishment Republicans, the relatively moderate Republicans in the Senate would stand up to him, to Trump, and kind of draw a, a, a red line. In fact, I think we used that term. And that didn't happen. In fact, every Republican who stood up to Trump saw his or her political career ended wasn't just smacked down, saw his or her political career ended. And because of that, the entire party fell in line. And that, that makes, that sort of range, raises the danger level to a new level. It means that uh, things like the, the impeachment process in which you know, Donald Trump engaged in um, exactly the kind of behavior that our founding fathers anticipated when they designed 
the institution of impeachment, exactly that sort of behavior, a, a, a egregious abuse of power for his own personal and political ends. And yet we couldn't impeach him. We could not use this one mechanism of accountability because Republicans um, from the outset declared that they were going to, um, to acquit him. So our, that the, the, the complete Trumpization of the Republican Party has meant that Congress, as an, as a, as an institution of accountability, has become effectively useless. Now, you sort of foreshadow this because you recall the story of Joseph McCarthy. And so, you know, a junior senator from Wisconsin, a rabid anti-communist. Um, but when uh, he began ranting and accusing of, of, you know, these dark suggestions of communists in the State Department, most Republicans in his era jumped on board, even moderate Republicans. What's different now? What's the, the most important difference between now and the 50s and also the 70s, the, the, the Nixon period, where eventually, late in the game, but, but importantly, Republicans came around to, to opposing Nixon, to, to supporting impeachment. Some of them did. The big difference is that is the level of polarization. The level of partisan polarization is so much greater today than it was either in the 50s or the 70s, both two periods where, where the parties were actually they were internally divided, but the differences between Republicans and Democrats in the 50s and the 70s were nowhere near what they are today. Polarization is such that um, both parties are willing, but particularly the Republican Party, which has become much more radicalized. Republicans are willing to, um, to tolerate a lot, to acquiesce with a lot, and to do a lot to avoid defeat at the hands of Democrats. What they are willing to tolerate uh, in order to beat the Democrats or not lose to the Democrats is, um, and we haven't, we haven't found the limits of that yet. Maybe we'll find it on election day, but um, it, it's polarization. It's, the, it's the, the level of fear and loathing between the two parties, particularly at the, at the mass level, the level of activists and voters, that's, that's different. You identify key indicators of authoritarian behavior uh, in your book, How Democracies Die. Could you just review what those key indicators are, particularly the ones that you think are really in play today? And it's a hallmark of all authoritarian leaders. Uh, yeah, I mean, these are indicators, first of all, we draw from the great political scientist, Juan Linz, the Spanish political scientist who um, uh, grew up in Franco Spain and spent most of his career thinking about how to uh, prevent democracies from dying, studying democratic breakdown. So we, we drew very heavily on, on his work in, in coming up with these indicators. These indicators are meant um, to try to identify potential autocrats before they come to power, to look at their behavior, their, their language, their behavior during campaigns or it, it, before they run for office. Um, so the, that voters and politicians can, can make sure not to elect them, basically. So the, the four are, um, one, uh, denying the legitimacy of opponents, uh, using language that treats opponents as enemies, as criminals, as subversives, rather than legitimate opponents. In a democracy, uh, you, you, uh, le politicians, leaders, must treat their opponents 
as legitimate actors. They have to have be, they have to recognize both publicly and privately that their rivals are equally legitimate actors who have a right to be out there doing politics, have a right to be criticizing them, have a right to be running against them. And if they win an election, they have the right to govern. Um, so that's one. Uh, a second one is a, a, a is a an unwilling or willingness to abandon key democratic rules of the game. Um, not recognizing election results is a biggie. This is, this is one of the things that tipped Daniel and I off very early on with Trump, with his, his statements uh, pretty early on in the 2016 campaign that um, if he didn't win, he might not respect the results of the election. That's walking away from a core, a core democratic rule of the game. Uh, a third one, which was very important to Linz, who, who grew up in the, in the fascist era, is um, toleration or promotion of violence of any kind. This is something that, in, at least in recent decades, was kind of unthinkable in the United States, but it's becoming thinkable. Trump's uh, encouragement of violence in his campaign rallies was another real indicator for us that, that something was different. Uh, and that, that has continued since, since he was elected. Uh, and the fourth is the willingness to curtail civil, liberty, civil liberties, excuse me, uh, of opponents and rivals, including in the media. And so threats to punish the media, uh, threatens to, to, threats to use libel law, threatens obviously to lock up opponents are examples of that. And we argue in the book that uh, the Trump checked off all four of these boxes during the campaign before he was ever president. So we had, we were forewarned that we had the, the warning signs were already there before uh, November 2016. It's not like Americans were taken by surprise. You argue that democracies die today not in spectacular ways like the Reichstag fire in Germany that propelled Hitler to power uh, or planes bombing the presidential palace such as happened in Chile when Pinochet came to power, but by other means you write, quote, by elected leaders. Explain what you mean. Well, um, uh, coups are not are, are nowhere near as, as common as they used to be. During the for most of the 20th century, and especially during the Cold War, the far and away the predominant way of, of democracy dying was the hands of the military. The some military group, usually uh, the, the the high command of the armed forces, seizes power, dissolves the constitution, puts the president on a plane or in jail or kills him, and and seizes power. And so you get a very quick and often very dramatic uh, destruction of democracy. Since the end of the Cold War, coups have become less common. Militaries have become less, uh, more reluctant to seize power. Uh, you do see some coups, we saw a coup in Thailand a few years ago, a coup in Egypt obviously a few years ago, but they're not very common. Uh, that does not mean that democracy doesn't die anymore. Democracies die much more likely, much, much more frequently at the hands of elected prime ministers and elected presidents who basically wound or kill democracy by much more subtle means. The, the reason for this change is that democracy um, has become much more legitimate across the world. In, um, in, in most societies in the world, almost all of them, uh, citizens want elections, citizens want a, some sort of civilian system in which they can elect their leaders. And so openly walking away from electoral politics or from constitutional rule is much harder than it used to be. 
Um, it's not impossible, but in much of the world, it's much harder than it used to be. So leaders have to find more subtle ways. And, um, and they have. And the, the master of this, the, the guy who's pulled this off better than anybody else uh, um, in the contemporary era is Viktor Orban in Hungary, who made a single law uh, in, in, in undermining democracy. He did it all by essentially legal means, by, by passing legislation in, in parliament, yeah, using his parliamentary supermajority to reform the constitution, to pack the bureaucracy, to pack the courts, and eventually tilt the playing field against the opposition. Uh, in other places like Venezuela and Turkey, uh, it, was a, it was a more thuggish process involved uh, uh, more rule breaking, but it was done, again, by things like packing the courts, uh, using the law enforcement agencies and the intelligence agencies to spy on and uh, sometimes blackmail, threaten, uh, and harass opponents. Um, using the government to threaten or blackmail or buy off the private sector or the media and eventually tilting the playing field in this and sometimes using things like uh, anti-corruption laws or tax laws, tax audits to legally investigate opponents. So instead of um, locking your opponent up for treason, as, as you did in the good old days, now you find uh, a tax violation and you bust your opponent on, on more seemingly legitimate grounds. That is the, the, the strategy that's been employed by most of the autocrats that you see in the last 25, 30, 40 years. You know, one of the things I find, and let me just uh, identify where you're listening to the Vermont Conversation, we're speaking uh, in this half hour with Professor Steve Levitsky. Uh, he's a professor at Harvard and co-author of the book, How Democracies Die. Our American uh, system, as we all have been inculcated since elementary school, is built on a three-legged stool of checks and balances, an executive, a judiciary, and a legislative branch. One of the, to me, the most confounding things is why one branch would cede its own power. And that's what it seems we're seeing when the Senate is ceding authority to the president, giving him powers, more powers than he's had before, at its own expense. How yeah. do you explain that? It's uh, partisan control. It's, it's parties. The founders did not, they didn't anticipate the existence of political parties when they created our, um, our system of checks and balances. And for most of, of U.S. history, not all period, but for many, many periods of U.S. history, including most of the 20th century, the political parties were not very internally uh, disciplined. They were internally uh, divided. There, was, there would be a faction that might line up with the president, but another faction that, that didn't. The Democrats for much of the 20th century had a, a liberal um, wing and a, and a very conservative wing in the South. Uh, Republicans also had liberal and conservative wings. So no president could count on the um, uh, the 100% discipline of his party in Congress. So you would have, so the Senate could act independently. What's changed now, and this, uh, it's not the only time in US history, but it's one of the few times in US history, is that the, um, given the level of, first of all, the level of polarization, um, which, which leads parties to, to, uh, to close ranks, right? If the other side, if the other party 
if you view the other party as a dangerous enemy that's going to bring socialism and destruction and, and destroy the American way of life, you're going to close ranks when things get rough. That's one reason. The other reason is the popularity of Donald Trump among Republicans. Actually, two things. Donald Trump is extraordinarily popular among Republicans, much more popular than any other, any senator, any Republican in the Senate. And we have a system of primaries. And primaries allow Trump to um, punish by supporting a challenger any senator who defies him. And so a 93% approval rating among Republicans and the threat of a primary is sufficient, we know, to get every single senator in line behind Trump. And when a party is, um, is lockstep 100% closed ranks behind the president, it ceases to be an independent check on the president's power. And that's what we see in the US Senate. Now, I know uh, political writers and historians are loath to make predictions uh, as our sports commentators, but we are seeing a lot of warning signs. This obsession with electoral fraud that Trump keeps floating, um, spin this forward into the fall. Yeah. What do you worry will happen come November? Uh, there's a lot to worry about. There is a lot to worry about. There are two, two things specifically, two scenarios that I worry about. One of them is kind of Florida 2000 on steroids. Um, until very recently, things might now be changing, but until very recently, it seemed very likely that this would be a super close election. Like neither side was going to win walking away. It was going to be close to a tie, very similar to most of our recent elections, certainly very similar to 2016. And it seemed very likely, um, and it still happened, that there would be two, three, four states with super close, razor thin margins, right? Uh, could be Wisconsin, uh, could be North Carolina, could be Michigan, Florida, all these states are gonna be really close. Um, so a scenario in which there's a recount, the, 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 the margin of victory is within the, mar the margin of a recount. And maybe that there is, and there are you know, absentee ballots coming in late, and maybe disagreements between the parties over the procedure for the recount, as we saw in Florida 2000. Um, all of that, this is not fantasy land. This is easy, easily could happen. Um, in 2000, the parties were less polarized. Al Gore was unbelievably statesmanlike. And the Supreme Court, even though it may have issued a, a politicized ruling, still had a lot of legitimacy. So when the Supreme Court ruled, people accepted it. None of those things are true today. The parties are much more polarized, much, much more polarized than they were 20 years ago. Uh, God knows Donald Trump is not Al Gore. And the Supreme Court, arguably the majority of the Supreme Court was stolen by, by Mitch McConnell in, in 2016. And so, it's, so if the Supreme Court, if there's a dispute and the Supreme Court steps in and rules on Trump's behalf, a huge number of Americans are not gonna, are, are, aren't gonna buy it. They're not gonna accept the legitimacy of that, of that outcome. So um, if there's a close election and there's any sort of dispute, particularly if Trump loses, Trump is gonna cry fraud. Um, for, when I wrote the book, I would have thought, man, eh, a, a, a faction of the Republican Party will come out and say, okay, time to go home. 
Donnie, but that's no longer clear. Uh, I think you'll very likely see Fox News screaming fraud, and you'll see the entire Republican Party line up behind Trump. I mean, that's, it, that, that, that's the lesson I get from the last two or three years. Um, so that's one crisis, uh, sort of Florida 2000 on steroids. The other one is um, related to the coronavirus. We obviously don't know, but it's quite possible that there'll be pretty severe um, infection rates in at least parts of the country in November, and that it'll be hard to vote in person. Some states have, have sort of made it very, very easy to vote by mail, but others have not. Um, our elections are, are persons by, by volunteers, many of whom are, are elderly, and it may decline to uh, for their own safety to, to vote, or excuse me, to work on the, on, on the election. So we may have what we've seen in recent, uh, we saw in, in April in, in Wisconsin and in a different way in Georgia yesterday, we may have a real shortage of polling places, huge lines uh, of people fearful for their health, um, all of which could easily lead to a a chaotic election day, again, similar to Wisconsin in April, similar to, to Georgia yesterday. Uh, we don't have to invent this, right? We've seen it before our eyes now twice. Um, in which turnout perhaps is, uh, is dramatically lowered because people are, are, are afraid to vote or unable to vote or abandon the lines because they're, they're too long. Um, it's probably more likely this will happen in cities rather than in small towns, that's the democratic base. So you may have a collapse in turnout, a differential collapse in turnout, one that works against the Democrats because uh, turnout in the cities is down. Uh, so you could have a, a, a situation if it's bad enough where Trump is clearly behind in the polls, but a chaotic low turnout election actually legally gives him the election. So, um, you know, some states have taken steps to kind of prevent this outcome, but many haven't, or they haven't done enough. And the, the Republican Party at the national level and the Trump administration, rather than providing the resources necessary to ensure that all people can vote safe, that we don't fall into it, into chaos on election day, has, uh, has declined to, to take steps, has declined to back vote by mail, has declined to provide the post office with the resources that would enable large-scale vote by mail, uh, has declined to take steps to local uh, communities with PPE and, uh, and maybe National Guard, some, some sort of workers to replace elderly volunteers. And so it, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a strategy that I would call malign neglect. They're essentially not acting um, to ensure uh, in the case of, of, a, of a, 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 a tough public health situation, that, that the election could proceed more or less normally. And they're doing it, I think, because um, they're kind of betting, given the Trump polls, that a chaotic low turnout election could work in Trump's favor. So those are two nightmare scenarios that are not that far-fetched. As you, you're a scholar of authoritarian regimes, uh, particularly in Latin America. I know that's your specialty. So as you look around the world, what would a second Trump term look like? What would an authoritarian leader 
do with another four years? It's a good question. Um, because the United States really hasn't had anything remotely like this, and because there really haven't been, there are very, very few democ rich democracies that have broken down in this way, it's, it's not easy to say. I mean, the, the, the sort of common response to that question is hungry. Um, which is kind of a, a, a velvet authoritarianism. Uh, Orban hasn't locked anybody up. He hasn't shed any blood. It's been very, very legal, but it's sort of a very slow, subtle tilting of the playing field. Um, but Orban is a, is a much more talented, disciplined politician than Trump. He's more popular than Trump. And the opposition is much weaker in Hungary than in the United States. Um, if Trump were to manage to get reelected, he would almost certainly do so um, in, in a very contested way with uh, a, a public support almost certainly in the low 40s uh, and, and, a, and a really angry, quite mobilized and well-resourced opposition. So I think you would see... Um, Without question, you would see greater efforts to politicize the state, to do what Trump has been doing over the last three or four years, which is purge and then pack with loyalists, the key institutions of the state that enable him uh, to, to tilt the playing field in his own favor. Um, this, is, this is most pronounced in, with Barr in the, in the um, Justice Department, but you see it uh, in, the, in the Department of State uh, you see it in in other institutions, in other agencies as well. That would likely continue. You would um, Trump's effort to sort of personally control and 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 personally corrupt our institutions and, and deploy them toward his own for his own protection and to punish his critics and rivals. That would continue. I just my I guess where I continue to be more optimistic than some is it's not clear how much he can get away with. I think it would, it would lead more to chaos and instability than to a kind of hungry-like stable authoritarianism, because I think Trump would be, uh, would be resisted. So what's the solution? How does America pull back from the brink? Well, I think there are short and medium-term solutions. In the short term, the, uh, a, a tremendous amount, unfortunately, is riding on this 2020 election. It makes a big difference whether Donald Trump gets reelected in 2020, in which case there are basically two options. Either we spin into chaos or we spin into authoritarianism. It, chaos is the best case scenario. Um, and, and if Trump is defeated, it does not solve our democracy's problems. I think sometimes Joe Biden's a little glib about that. Um, but it's a necessary first step. Trump must be removed from the presidency if we're gonna to start to rebuild our democracy. Um, after that, really, the, the, the second most important thing is that the Republican Party has to change. The Republican Party is increasingly a party of white Christians, exclusively white Christians, almost exclusively white Christians. And that matters because white Christians are a really distinctive group in this country. They, not long ago, in our childhood, were the overwhelming majority of, the, of voters, and they, were the, they sat atop every single one of our political, economic, social, cultural institutions, right? They controlled the presidency, 
senators, governorships. They were the CEOs. They were the TV newscasters. They were the celebrities. Um, all that has changed over the last 50 years. But losing a, an electoral majority and losing one's dominant social status is a really threatening thing. Many Republican voters feel like the country that they grew up in has been taken away from them. And that's an incredibly threatening feeling. And that, I think, is at the core of what um, drives the radicalization of the Republican Party. That is what, that is ultimately, if you had to point to one factor, is what is driving our country's polarization. It's the anger and fear of a declining white Christian majority. Um, and as long as the Republicans represent only that group, I think they're going to be a, a quite radical and dangerous party because it's, they're increasingly a party that can't win national elections, um, which is leading them to play dirty. So the Republicans need to change. The Republicans need to be a party that can win votes in cities, that can win votes among young people, that can win votes among secular voters, that can win votes among non-white voters. As soon as the Republican Party can do that, as soon as the Republican Party is, is comfortable with winning elections, competing in elections across all of the United States, and competing elections in what is essentially the 21st century American society, I think that they will, they, the Republicans will de-radicalize. I don't think we're that far from that. When the Republicans lost in 2012, they did a, uh, a what they call, what's been called an autopsy report after, the, after Obama's reelection, in which uh, Republicans told themselves, we have to do exactly this. We need to win uh, more non-white voters. We need to win young voters. We win in the cities. Uh, we need to, to, to change. Now, Trump did exactly the opposite um, uh, because he won the primary. But um, I think that's the step that needs to change. The other thing that we can do to, I think, defend our democracy is, uh, is take steps to, to make it much, to ensure that everybody in this country has a, a, a easy access to registration and, and to the ballot. Um, the, the threats that we've seen, particularly in the last decade, over uh, to, to uh, uh, the, the purging of voter rolls, the elimination of, of, uh, of polling sites, uh, voter ID laws that, that make it more difficult for people to register and or vote uh, is, is a major threat to democracy. And so there are really basic steps that can make it much, much easier for everybody to vote. Uh, and I think that's really important. Okay. Well, Stephen Levitsky, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Uh, Stephen Levitsky is professor of government at Harvard University and the author, uh, uh, the co-author of How Democracies Die. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this in all shows at vermontconversation.com. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. The Vermont Conversation with David Goodman. This special feature from Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility is underwritten in part by... Vermont Student Assistance Corporation. VSAC helps students of all ages save, plan, and pay for college and career training with education and career planning services, need-based grants, scholarships, low-cost education loans, and Vermont's official 529 college savings plan. Norwich Solar Technologies, providing complete clean energy services to Vermont schools, towns, nonprofits, and businesses. 
Green Mountain Power, delivering clean, cost-effective, and highly reliable power to customers and offering cutting-edge products and services to reduce costs and carbon. The Alchemist Brewery of Waterbury and Stowe, proud B Corp using the power of business to support a clean environment and economic opportunity for all. UVM Medical Center, Burlington, Vermont, the heart and science of medicine. Let's Grow Kids, a statewide campaign about the need for more high-quality, affordable childcare in Vermont to better support our children, families, communities, and economy. Concept 2, designers and manufacturers of Concept 2 rowing oars, indoor rower, ski erg, and bike erg, and proud to support nonprofit groups such as the Green Mountain Club. And nearly 700 business members of Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility who believe that sustainable business practices value people, planet, and profit.